text for this morning is Psalm 9. Because, people of God, the structure of this psalm is rather complex, a verse-by-verse exposition of the psalm might be rather difficult to follow. And so instead of going through the psalm verse-by-verse, as I've done in the past, what I want to do this morning is call your attention to prominent features of this psalm. And I hope in that way that you'll come to a sound understanding of the psalm as a whole. We're going to consider the psalm under the theme, Praise for Justice and Petition for Mercy to the Stronghold of the Oppressed. Praise for Justice and Petition for Mercy to the Stronghold of the Oppressed. The first thing that I want to call your attention to about this psalm is its structure. The basic structure of the psalm is threefold, that is, there are three main parts to it. In the first eight verses of the psalm, David praises God for the justice God has already administered on his behalf. Verses 1 to 8. In verses 9 to 12, David changes the focus from himself to others. does not speak in those verses any longer of himself, but rather of the oppressed and humble among God's people. He speaks there of God being a stronghold for them and calls upon them to praise him and to tell his deeds among the people. In verses 13 to 20, then, David makes petition to God for his mercy in the time of trouble he is going through. Those are the three sections of the psalm. Now, in the first part of that psalm, we can also note three subsections, very briefly. First of all, verses 1 and 2, where David expresses his praise directly to the Lord. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. Then in verses 3 to 5, he tells us why he is praising the Lord. He is praising the Lord for his justice. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence, for you have maintained my right and my cause. But in verses 6 to 8, he addresses his enemy. Now he turns from prayer to his enemy, and he says to his enemy, destructions are finished forever. Now he's warning his enemy that the judgment of God is coming. In the second part of the psalm, verses 9 to 12, I don't think we need to break that down into subsections, but we can note the main elements of the thought there. In the first place, of course, when David speaks of the oppressed and humble here, in verses 9 to 12, he is not talking about oppressed and humble people in general. Those are instead names for the people of God. And you find the names, such names given to the people of God also in verse 18. The needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. All those names are names given to the people of God. And you find those names given to the people of God actually frequently in the Psalms. We're going to see this again and again throughout the Psalms, that you have these designations for the people of God, and they're designations that are very similar, for example, to the designations 
of the people of God found in the Beatitudes of our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, and so on. That's the idea here in this psalm. The oppressed, then, are the people of God from the perspective of the fact that the nations hate them. The nations seek to suppress their voice, their influence, and even their existence in the world. They are the humble because they are not people who have power in this world. The nations are set against them. And they are a handful, relatively speaking, of people who serve the Lord. They are the poor and the needy, as verse 18 calls them, because they have no resources in themselves to oppose the nations of the world. But they look to the Lord. Notice what David says in verse 10. Those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. They know the name of the Lord. That is, they know his reputation. They know the works that he's done in the past. They know what his words about himself have been and how he has revealed himself to men. They know him as a God who helps the humble and oppressed. And therefore they seek him. They call upon his name and ask him for the help they do not have in themselves. They do not do that in vain. For the Lord hears them. You, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. And so David calls on these humble and oppressed people to sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion and to declare his deeds among the people. The third section of the psalm also has three parts to it. We find David's petitions for deliverance in verse 13 and 14. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. Then he describes the workings of God's justice in verses 15 to 18. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made, and so on. And finally, in verses 19 and 20, he calls upon the Lord to administer his justice to the nations. Let the nations be judged in your sight. So three sections. The first section itself has three subsections. The last section also has three subsections. And we have to ask what's the relationship between these sections. In the first place, of course, the order of sections 1 and 3 is unusual, even for the Psalms. Normally, we would expect to find that the order would be first petition and then praise. And this is an order you find frequently in the Psalms. This Psalm has the section of praise first and the petition last. I think John Calvin, in his commentary on this Psalm, has the best explanation of that order he says basically this, that David had already experienced the deliverance of the Lord over against his enemies. And therefore, in the first part of the psalm, is giving thanks to the Lord for that deliverance which the Lord has already given. But, he also says, David does not yet have complete deliverance. Because he does not yet have complete deliverance, he continues 
even in the same song where he praises God for his justice to add his petitions for God's help. But that still doesn't explain that middle section, verses 9 to 12, where David turns the focus of the psalm from himself to the oppressed and humble in general. We have to see two things, I think, about that middle section. First of all, in that middle section, David is encouraging the oppressed and humble to draw help and comfort from his experience. The Lord has judged him, has upheld his right and cause. He who is David's judge will also be their judge. He who has upheld David's cause will also uphold their cause. But in the last part of the psalm, this relationship is is reversed. Now David himself draws from the assurances about the oppressed and humble comfort and encouragement for the troubles he has. So he sees that the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed and concludes then in the last part of the psalm that the fact that the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed means that he will also be his stronghold in his present trouble. That then about the structure of the psalm. The second thing that we want to note about the psalm is that just as in Psalm 7, there is a strong emphasis throughout this psalm on the justice of God. There are, as we've noted, seven subsections of the psalm, and in those seven subsections we find four of them devoted to the subject of God's justice. First, verses 3 to 5, where David praises God for the justice God has administered to him in upholding his right and cause. Then in verses 6 to 8, where David warns his enemy that his destructions have come to an end because of the justice of God. Then in verses 15 to 18, where David speaks of the character of God's justice and speaks of the character of God's justice objectively, but in order to strengthen himself in his present affliction. And finally, in verses 19 and 20, where David asks for God to administer justice to the nations, let the nations be judged in your sight. But the emphasis on justice here in this psalm is not, like in Psalm 7, exclusive. In Psalm 7, David was entirely concerned with the righteousness of God over against that false accusation of Cush, the Benjamite. But here, in verses 13 and 14, he asks for mercy. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me, you who lift me from the gates of death. So David focuses on justice, but also brings into his petition a plea for mercy. It's not because he needs forgiveness. David's cause is just. David is pleading against enemies who are unjustly attacking him, seeking to do him harm. 
But what David recognizes here in verse 13 is that whenever the Lord acts on our behalf, whether it be acts of forgiveness or whether it be acts of justice in defending our cause against the wicked, his mercy, his grace, his condescension, his stooping down is required. He is infinitely exalted above us. And we are very insignificant. We have no right, even as just persons, to call upon him. We have no rights before him at all. Always his stooping to us requires an act of mercy. This is actually, people of God, what Psalm 113 is about. The whole of that psalm, really. But let's look at verses 5 and 6, especially. Who is like the Lord our God, who dwells on high, who humbles himself, to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth. Always when the Lord responds to us, whether it be with justice or with mercy, he humbles himself. There are two more things we want to note about these uh, discussions of God's justice in the psalm. In two of the sections about God's justice, David places the matter of his personal justice in the context of God's universal justice. First in verses 3 to 5, you need to notice it there. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence, for you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. But then in verse 6, he changes the focus from his personal enemies to a universal focus. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The same thing happens in verses 6 to 8. O enemy, he says, and that's his own enemy, destructions are finished forever. But then in verse 7, The Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness. And he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. David places the the personal judgment in the context of universal judgment. And he does that, of course, because he sees his own personal judgment as part of the grand sweep of God's judgments throughout the whole history of the world and of his judgments on all nations in the world at any given time. God's judgment is universal. And those personal judgments which he administers on our behalf can only be properly understood in the context of that universal judgment. So that then in the second place, the emphasis on justice. The next thing we want to note is that David switches back and forth in this psalm between singular and plural. And I'm afraid our translation does not call our attention to this as much as it could. But he does that, first of all, with regard to our enemies or his enemies. Notice, for example, in verse 5, 
you have rebuked the nations, plural. But then, in the next line of verse 5, you have destroyed the wicked one, not wicked men, the wicked one, singular. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Again, in verses 6 to 8, he begins with the singular, O enemy, singular. And then in verse 8, he shall administer judgment for the peoples, plural, in upright names. You see the same thing happening in verses 15 to 17. The nations, plural, have sunk down in the pit which they made, in the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. Then in verse 16, the last line, the wicked one, or the wicked man, singular, is snared in the work of his own hands. And again in verse 17, the wicked, now plural, the wicked men, shall be turned into hell, all the nations that forget God. So he keeps switching back and forth between singular and plural here with regard to these enemies and nations. Why does he do that? To show us, people of God, both the universality and the individuality of God's judgments. That is, God judges all the nations. All the nations must come before his throne and ultimately be judged by him in righteousness. But while he judges the nations, he judges also every single individual among those nations. No single person among those nations who oppose him escapes his justice. It is both a universal judgment and an individual judgment. But David does the same thing with regard to the oppressed and humble. If you go to verse 9, the Lord will be also will be a refuge for the oppressed one, singular, a refuge in times of trouble. Verse 10, those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you, plural. Then in verse 12, again the plural, when he avenges blood, he remembers them, He does not forget the cry of the humble ones, plural. But in verse 18, the needy, singular, the needy man shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor man, singular, shall not perish forever. So you have again that switching between the singular and the plural. Why is that? Because God saves delivers his individual people, his individual saints in the world. But he delivers them into the body, into the group of his oppressed and humble people. His deliverances are individual, but his deliverances of the individuals are to make them a part of the whole of his oppressed and humble people. So that's the second thing, this switching, or the third thing, the switching between the singular and the plural. I want now to take a look at some of the parallelisms of the psalm. We have a 
number of what we may call synonymous parallelisms throughout the psalm. When we speak of synonymous parallelisms, we mean those parallelisms in which the lines are basically repetitions of each other. The same idea is stated essentially each time. Thus, in verses 1 and 2, for example, I will praise you, O Lord. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice. I will sing praise to your name. Four lines in which David speaks of praising the Lord. Now, those four lines are not vain repetition, such as our Lord condemned in his Sermon on the Mount. But they are rather, people of God, the overflowing of a grateful heart. One or two lines would not have been enough for David fully to express his praise and thanksgiving to the Lord for all that the Lord had done for him. It takes him more than that. So he repeats himself, essentially repeats himself, four times in order fully to express his praise and gratitude. But notice that in each one of these synonymous lines, basically synonymous lines, David also introduces a unique element. That's also important. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. His heart will not be divided in the praise of God. His heart will not be devoted in part to praise and in part to other matters. God has granted him a great deliverance. He is overflowing with gratitude, his whole heart will be devoted with praise to praise of God. In the second line, he speaks of God's marvelous works. I will tell all your marvelous works. Now, if you look up that word, term, marvelous works, in the Old Testament, you'll find that it refers to such works of God as, for example, the plagues upon Egypt or the deliverance of Israel at the Jordan River when God made the river go backwards or waters of the river stopped flowing so that Israel could cross over. That's a term that's used to describe his miraculous works, in other words. Those works which do not normally occur in the creation. And when they do occur, of course, call special attention to the power of God and arouse wonder and amazement in men. A better translation of the term, in fact, would be wonders. I will tell all your wonders. And David has in mind here not just the wonders that God has performed for him personally, but all the wonders of God for his people in the history of the nation. In the third line, he says, I will be glad and rejoice in you. Not in what you have done for me. Well, that's certainly an element of it. I will be glad and rejoice in you. That is, I will be glad and rejoice not just that I'm a participant in your justice and in all your goodness to your people, but I will be glad and rejoice that there is a God like you in the world. A God who does such things without regard even to myself and to my personal benefit. And finally, in the last line of this parallelism, he names God as the Most High. God is infinitely exalted above his creatures. He presides over the world. He presides over David and David's enemies. He presides over deliverance and justice 
He presides over trouble. All creatures and all things are in his hands. And he does according to his will in heaven and on earth. He is worthy, therefore, of great praise and great honor. We have another synonymous parallelism in verse 11. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. Sing his praise. Declare his deeds. But here, David establishes the fundamental order of the world. The Lord dwells in Zion. Around him, the Lord gathers his people. There in Zion. And he gathers his people there so that he may both defend them and be enthroned upon their praises. From Zion, then, the people of God declare his praises to all peoples. That's the fundamental order of the world. Verse 12 is another example. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Here, David speaks of God's justice in terms of vengeance. He seeks blood. When he seeks that blood, he will not forget his oppressed and humble people. Verses 15 and 16 provide another example of synonymous parallelism. But here you have three lines that are essentially the same and one line that's different. Three lines that focus on the theme that God returns the trouble of the wicked on their own heads. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made in the net which they hid. Their own foot is caught. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. But the third line is different. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. In other words, the Lord's justice is known, but it is known very specifically as a justice that returns the trouble the wicked plan for others on their own heads. He is known as a God who does, in fact, perfect justice, who punishes according to the crime committed, who makes the wicked fall in their own snares. And finally, verse 18, the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. God does not forget them. At some point, he comes and he satisfies their hopes. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. So those, I think, are the main synonymous parallelisms. But you have also a series of progressive parallelisms, what we may call progressive parallelisms. And they're parallelisms in which the lines of the parallelism do not repeat what goes before, but build on it instead. Add to it. So in verse 3, When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. The enemies of David come against him. In coming against him, they find themselves, to their dismay and terror, in the presence of the Lord. They shall stumble and perish at your presence. And when they see that presence of the Lord there with David, they turn back. In their turning back, they stumble, and in their stumbling, they perish. 
The same thing happens in verses 6, in verse 5, excuse me. You have rebuked the nations, you have destroyed the wicked, you have blotted out their name forever and ever. The Lord rebukes the nations, he speaks a word against them. His word against them brings their destruction. You have destroyed the the wicked. And when he destroys them, he destroys them so completely that their names are utterly forgotten. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Again in verses 7 and 8. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. The first line, I think, is a sort of summary line. The Lord shall endure forever. And it stands in contrast first to the last line of verse 5. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The names of the wicked are not forever. The Lord blots them out, in fact, forever. In contrast also to the first line of verse 6. O enemy, destructions are finished forever. The destructions of the wicked do not last forever. In fact, eventually the Lord brings an end to them forever. The Lord, however, is forever. He is the eternal one who sits upon his throne. He has prepared his throne for judgment. In other words, here we have God preparing for his judgment preparing his throne so that he can take his seat. In verse 8, the first line, he shall judge the world in righteousness. The Lord has taken his seat and is now judging. He shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. Now the Lord administers justice according to the judgment declared. And finally, in verses 19 and 20, where David prays, David has five petitions there in verses 19 and 20, and each petition builds on the one that comes before. Arise, O Lord. The Lord seems to him to be inactive to defend him against his enemies. So he calls on the Lord to arise. Do not let man prevail. David's life and well-being are threatened. So he seeks that the Lord in his arising will prevent the success of his enemies. Let the nations be judged. The means of preventing them will be judgment in his sight. The result of that judgment will be fear. Put them in fear, O Lord. And the result of the fear will be that the nations know themselves to be but men. The fundamental problem, you see, with those enemies was that they were proud. They exalted themselves against the Lord and against his people. They assumed for themselves divine prerogatives, asserted that they had such rights and authority with regard to these oppressed and humble people, attacked them on the basis of that proud assertion of their rights and their power in the world. David says, let the result of your judgment be that they know themselves to be but men. Bring them back to a knowledge of their real place in relation to you and to the world. They too are creatures. Now it's interesting, 
to note two more things about this subject of parallelisms. First, that the progressive parallelisms that we've just been talking about have to do primarily with the wicked. Things are always changing for them. God comes in judgment. God carries out the consequences of that judgment in their lives. Things are always happening to the wicked throughout this psalm. And they're not good things. But the synonymous parallelisms are by and large with respect either to the praise of God's people, praising God for his justice, or with regard to God's dealings with them. And those synonymous parallelisms then reflect the fact that in his work for them, God is primarily concerned with preserving them from their enemies. Things don't necessarily change so much as that God keeps them, God protects and defends them. He's a stronghold for the oppressed. But there's one exception to that, and that's in verses 13 and 14. The other prayer that David makes in this psalm, have mercy on me, O Lord, consider my trouble from those who hate me, you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. David is at the gates of death, but he asks that God take him from the gates of death and place him in the gates of the daughter of Zion. The place of public concourse where he may publicly declare the praises of his God. I will rejoice in your salvation. Very briefly now, there's also an awful lot in this psalm about remembering and forgetting. First verse 5, you have blotted out their name forever and ever. That is, God blots out, makes the names of the wicked be forgotten forever and ever. Secondly, in verse 6, even their memory has perished. The wicked have destroyed many cities and have made the memories of those cities perish. Next, in verse 12, when he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Then in verse 17, David talks about the nations that forget God and are by him then pressed into the land of forgetfulness. And finally, in verse 18, the needy shall not always be forgotten. A lot about remembering and forgetting on both sides then, here. I also need to call your attention to the Christology of this psalm. First of all, people of God, we can never go wrong when in discussing the psalms, we remember the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ sang and prayed these psalms during his earthly ministry. And when he sang and prayed them, he made them his own. That is, they became real to him in his own life and circumstances. When he sang the first part of this psalm, he sang in praise of the justice of God on his behalf. 
when he sang the last part of this song, praying for the mercy of God, condescension of God to him. He prayed as one who was himself oppressed and humble and poor and needy. When he sang the middle part of this song regarding the Lord being a refuge for the oppressed, he sang it to those who were humble and oppressed along with them, exhorting them and encouraging them to draw from his own experiences comfort for their difficult times. In all of these things, our Lord entered into our experiences. In fact, we can put it the other way around, people of God. It is only insofar as these songs are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ himself during his earthly ministry as one of us, that they can also be ours. If they were not his, they could not be ours. They are ours only as we are one with him. But a couple of other points as well. First of all, we noted already that at the beginning of verse, or at the end of verse 7, David says he has prepared his throne for judgment. What does that mean? That the Lord has prepared his throne for judgment. Well, to ask that question drives us inevitably to the conclusion that the Lord prepares his throne for judgment in the incarnation and exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is in that way that he prepared his throne for judgment. He exalted our Lord Jesus Christ to a position of power at his right hand and appointed him to be the judge of all nations. It's therefore of Christ that the psalm speaks when it says, He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. Again, in verse 13, we spoke of God's condescension to us. How does he condescend? He condescends to us, people of God, not just in taking note of our afflicted and oppressed circumstances, but he condescends to us in the person of his son who became a servant and was made in the likeness of men, who was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That's how he condescends. And finally, in verses 15 and 16, where we talked about how God turns back on the wicked the trouble that they plan for others. That is nowhere more evident, people of God, than in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wicked men presumed to judge him. The leaders of the Jews, Pontius, Pilate, and Herod, all presumed to judge the Son of God and to condemn him and to put him to death in that bitter way. But in doing so, they prepared their own destruction. They laid the stepping stones of the path that took our Lord Jesus Christ to his position as their judge 
at the end of time. Let's conclude then with a few words of application about this. First of all, let's ask ourselves the question, why do we not have today the same sense of being oppressed by enemies as David had? The Psalms are full of this, and this is something we're going to have to come to terms with as we study these Psalms. How are these Psalms that speak so frequently of enemies applicable, relevant to us in our present time when we do not have that same sense of being oppressed by enemies? We're at peace. And because we're at peace, relatively speaking, and at least in this country, we forget, people of God, that we live in a world which is fundamentally hostile to us. We forget that we do indeed dwell among enemies and that our Lord has called us to clothe ourselves with his armor and to wield the sword of the Spirit. He has put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent is seeking our destruction throughout the whole history of the world, whether in times when the enemy is basically leaving us alone, not persecuting us, or in times of persecution makes no difference. On the one, in the one side, he seeks to destroy us by taking away our lives. And the other side, he seeks to entice us with the pleasures of this world. And always he seeks our destruction. We may not forget that. We live in a world that's hostile to us. If we pay attention to the Psalms, and this whole matter of the antithesis in the Psalms, it will increase our awareness of that very important fact. Another thing that I think we'll find as we continue to work through the Psalms, that we'll continue to find somewhat uh, difficult for us to relate to our own circumstances, is the emphasis on death. The Psalms are always talking about death. And always the psalmists are asking God to deliver them from death. Well, we don't have that same kind of preoccupation, do we? We don't feel that presence of death like the psalmist did. And I think it's because when we think of death, when it's mentioned in the psalms, we think of physical death. It's not what the psalmists are talking about, not primarily anyway. What the psalmists are talking about when they talk about death, and David does that here too, by the way, you who lift me from the gates of death. When the psalmists talk about death, they're talking about the fundamental character of death, which is separation from their God. That's a very pressing reality for them. In a world that is hostile to them, the fundamental threat to them is not physical death, but is separation from their God. And that's as real for us as it was for them. So we make this psalm our own, praising God for his justice on our behalf, also praying to him for his justice on our behalf. And there is to our praise and to our prayers a public aspect. God 
sits in Zion among his people. And his people are called, as they dwell in Zion, to declare his deeds among the peoples. God is enthroned upon the praises of Israel. God is known as the God of justice against the nations by the words, the praises, and prayers of his people. Having heard the word of God, let us say, Amen.